Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab. This is Joe Cotter of the American Cancer Society's Research Department here with my friend, Dr. Susanna Greer. What's up, Susanna? Hey, Joe. All good today. You covered some ground today, some fundamental ground that's just critical in the fight against cancer, talking about DNA replication and repair. Can't get any more fundamental than that. And nobody better to speak to than Dr. Johannes Walter. He's an American Cancer Society research professor, professor of biological chemistry at Harvard Medical School, and member of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Also, I thought this was pretty cool. He's the co-founder of a company called MoMA Therapeutics. MoMA stands for Molecular Machines. So this company, they're, they're targeting the molecular machines that perform work in cells. So this was a pretty wide-ranging conversation, Susanna. Um, what stood out to you? You know, I love the last piece that Johannes left us with, which is that cancer is so horrible and devastating. And because of the, that devastation, we've been motivated as a society and certainly as scientists to really understand what are the molecular mechanisms that are driving cancer. And Johannes, I mean, his lab has just done some amazing work, and we'll touch on different pieces of the contributions that he and his colleagues have made into understanding what is it that goes so wrong when cancer cells um, develop this ability to divide indefinitely. And you're right, he studies DNA replication, DNA repair, and one of the things I really wanted him to help us understand was how does he go from the model system that he uses, which is frog egg extracts, so the DNA from thousands and thousands of frog cells, how do you go from that to understanding what's happening in DNA repair? And most interesting to Johannes, when DNA repair doesn't happen or doesn't work, um, which again leads us to thinking about cancer. So. It is a beautiful story that he shared with us um, about all the different kinds of repair, why it's so necessary, and the contributions that his lab has made. So I think you'll enjoy it. Good morning, Johannes. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you for asking, Susanna. All right. We are excited to have you share with us today some of your really tremendous research, but we need to we need to get back to basics a little bit. In fact, the most basic that that we could almost get. Um, let's remind us, just let's level set. Most of our listeners are familiar with DNA, but, but maybe not everybody. So uh, what is it? What's DNA? Why should we be so excited about it? Right. So DNA is the really the blueprint for life or the instruction manual that every cell uh, carries with it, and that has to be copied precisely before cells divide so that each cell can inherit uh, a pristine copy of this DNA blueprint. And it consists of units called bases or base pairs that come in four flavors, A, G, C, and T. And each cell has about six billion units of these base pairs or six billion base pairs which is equivalent to the number of characters in the entire English language Encyclopedia Britannica. So it's a vast amount of information. So two things really stand out to me. And the first is that you reminded us that 
when cells divide that all six billion pieces of information needs to be copied correctly. And, and in fact, you, you shared that it should be a pristine copy. So I imagine you are setting us up for a realization or a reminder that this doesn't happen every time, right? That the mistakes happen during this copying of DNA. So it would make sense since this is going to be a conversation about cancer that when those mistakes are made that that can lead to cancer but that most of the time that doesn't happen that mistakes are repaired can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so in a typical cell division a cell will make a mistake one in 10 billion times. That is one in 10 billion of these base pairs will be incorrect. That's when everything is going according to plan. So that means that, that on average, less than once every time a cell divides, it makes a mistake. And it's kind of fun to consider the fact that if the transmission of genetic information were absolutely perfect, that is, if cells never made mistakes, there would be no evolution. Because uh, evolution is the result of variation that then undergoes selection. So, um, so on the one hand, the fidelity of, of this copying process cannot be perfect because there would be no evolution. But on the other hand, if the fidelity drops below this one in 10 billion rate, then you have problems. That's when cells start to accumulate mistakes at uh, such a rapid rate that uh, things like cancer and neurodegeneration and other diseases uh, start to come into play. It's a really interesting kind of seesaw that you set up for us that we have to be able to evolve and adapt to our surroundings and situations. And that occurs during this process of selection. And we could have a whole other podcast about that. So but I think you've convinced us that on the one hand, we need while we need to have um, a really high level of, you called it fidelity, we could also use the word accuracy or precision when DNA is copied, that most of the time that happens right, sometimes it doesn't, and that's okay because it allows for this natural selection, but then sometimes if the seesaw goes too far in the other direction and there are too many mistakes, that we can move into a disease state. And the one we're gonna focus on today would be cancer. So let's talk about how actually would that, what does that mean? What could cause DNA to be damaged would be one question. And then the other side of that would be, how is it most, how is damaged DNA most often repaired? There are really two sources of DNA damage or mutations or mistakes. One is, actual errors in the copying process. So that accounts for um, some of the mistakes, but probably the bigger source of mistakes 
is insults, chemical insults to the DNA. <clears throat> and we classify these into so-called exogenous sources of uh, damage, that is things that come to us from our environment, and so-called endogenous sources, uh, things that exist in all cells. So examples of exogenous sources of damage are things like cosmic rays when you go up in an airplane, uh, and even down on Earth, uh, you will be bombarded with high-energy radiation that can break DNA strands in half. Uh, UV rays, so the UV light that comes from the sun, uh, causes chemical lesions called thymine dimers. Cigarette smoke has lots of nasty chemicals, industrial wastes like formaldehyde. Um, you know, compounds that are generated when you throw a steak on the grill, all of these things can attack and damage DNA, and those are the sort of environmental sources. But even if you have a super healthy lifestyle, uh, you know, you don't smoke, you don't suntan, uh, you don't work in an industrial plant, then unfortunately, uh, even, even, you know, the healthiest person will still sustain DNA damage because the cellular environment is such that the chemicals that exist in your cells are constantly attacking DNA. So for example, formaldehyde, which is an industrial product, is actually also generated at some significant level in your cells as a byproduct of cellular metabolism. But also just water, water, which is essential to life, is also constantly attacking your DNA. So uh, cells, every cell in your body, all the time, right now as we're speaking, um, all of your cells are constantly repairing DNA damage. And they do so using, oh, probably about 10 distinct so-called DNA repair pathways. And each one of these pathways is really dedicated to the repair of a specific type or class of lesion. <laughs> this is so incredibly complex. So we start, you started off sharing with us that this blueprint for life is incredibly complex, that we need to have a pristine copy generated every time, but yet there are these big challenges to that happening. So you listed two different types of damage that could occur to this blueprint. And from the situation that you've set up occurs a lot. So you, you listed things that could happen from our environment and gave a lot of examples, um, UV rays being one. And then you gave examples of what could happen inside our cells and this kind of constant constant damage of exposure to DNA. So this all leads me to think that DNA repair is something that's happening all the time. And I think it would be interesting for us to think about to think about that. So how then is DNA damage most often repaired? So it really depends on the type of damage. So um, for example, UV light, right? Every time you go out into the sun, the cells in your skin are exposed to UV rays and they induce these things called thymine dimers. And these thymine dimers are really bad 
because when you try to copy over them, you frequently make mistakes. So cells have a whole mechanism or what we call a pathway called nucleotide excision repair, which uh, removes, which is dedicated to the removal of these thymine dimers. And the basic concept that underlies this pathway and many other pathways is the fact that DNA is a double helix. So probably many of you have heard about this, right? So it's, it's two strands of DNA that wrap around each other. And the really cool thing about DNA is that all you need is one strand to create the double helix because the one strand encodes all of the information that you need to build the second strand upon it. And so cells take advantage of that for DNA repair because if a thymine dimer, one of these UV-induced DNA damages, is generated in one strand, well, then all you have to do is cut out the bit of DNA or the, the, a short segment of the one strand that contains the damage, and then you can use the information in the other strand to rebuild the strand that you excised. So another way to say it is that the structure of DNA is internally redundant so that, uh, so that if you lose or damage the information in one strand, you can use the other strand to rebuild it. And we call that excision repair. And there are actually many flavors of excision repair. Nucleotide excision repair is one of them. Base excision repair is another uh, that takes advantage of this concept. It sounds like everything should just be perfect all the time, but we know it's not. So why, why then would that fail? Why then would either this form of repair or another potentially not happen? And if it did, so say you had from UV damage, um, the dimer, and it was missed. It wasn't cut out. So what, what might happen then that would be detrimental then to that blueprint, to that pristine copy? Kind of give us a worst case scenario. Well, so we know exactly what the worst case scenario is because there are patients with a disease called xeroderma pigmentosum, or XP for short, which lack this nucleotide excision repair pathway. So it turns out that this pathway is not essential as long as you are not exposed to UV light. And so these patients, once, uh, you know, once they uh, realize, once the parents of the children realize that these kids have this disease, the kids live at night. They, they sleep during the day. They live at night. Uh, if they ever go out during the day, they have to cover every single bit of their skin. If they fail to do so, 30 seconds out in the sun can uh, cause major uh, cancerous lesions. So, so we know from this human disease that the absence of this repair pathway is, is really can be absolutely devastating. Um, 
And, you know, the molecular explanation for what's going on is that these thymine dimers distort the structure of DNA in such a way that the next time that you try to copy the DNA, the, the machinery, the so-called DNA polymerases that synthesize DNA get confused when they encounter such a thymine dimer and they might insert the wrong nucleotide uh, or the wrong base across from this thymine dimer and that leads to mutations that then ultimately give rise to all of the changes that um, are required for a cell to become a cancer cell. All right, so it, it seems then that DNA repair is really absolutely essential to the maintenance of life. And that brings us more in line with your area of expertise and focus, which is that we really have to understand what happens to DNA on a molecular level and how DNA is repaired, or I guess not. And so your lab uses some really interesting systems to study DNA repair that I think our listeners would enjoy hearing about. Um, so let's talk about frog egg extracts. So I think, first of all, what is it? What is a frog egg extract? And help us to understand how this is such a useful tool to study DNA repair and how it is possibly relevant to human disease. Well, a frog egg extract is pretty much just like it sounds, which is an extract from the eggs of a frog that comes from South Africa. It's called Xenopus levis, or also known as the African clawed toad. And what's unique about these frogs is that they can be induced, the females can be induced to lay lots and lots of eggs thousands and thousands. We have, we can collect beakers full of these eggs. And we then take the eggs and we put them into a centrifuge and we spin them at very high speed. And the centrifugal force acting on the eggs effectively breaks them. And that releases their contents. And that is what we call an extract. And these extracts are really unique and remarkable in that we can take pretty much any piece of DNA from any source, whether it's a human or a fly or a bacterium, and we can put it into the extract and the extract will then act on the DNA and copy it by pretty much the same process that would happen inside the intact egg of uh, of this frog. And I should mention that the extract, what the extract contains, is pretty much every protein, that is every enzyme that you would normally find inside of the egg, because we literally just broke open the egg and took all of the DNA contents, uh, sorry, all of the protein contents. And, and so really, um, we think of the extract as kind of a cell in a test tube. So what we've done is we've liberated the process of DNA replication and DNA repair from the confines of the cell 
so that we can study it in a test tube which allows us to manipulate everything in the reaction at great length. So that's amazing. So basically you're you're taking these broken egg extracts, a lot a lot of them. I'm I'm having I'm feeling some kind of way about these female frogs and their thousands of eggs. <laughs> it's a topic for another day. But <laughs> It basically gives you an enormous resource and allows you to study things at a molecular level more easily. And one of the things that your lab has discovered are things that are happening during DNA repair that I, I think were somewhat unexpected. Um, so from my reading about your work, I know that when DNA is repaired, it's it's a really busy interesting situation that's happening. Uh, there seem to be lots. You, you mentioned that your lab is studying in these extracts all the proteins that are involved in DNA repair. And it isn't just one or two. This is a lot of proteins that are interacting with each other to fix damaged DNA. And you recently made some very interesting, you and your lab, discoveries about how cells organize all of these proteins. And when I, when I was thinking about this, I'm trying to come up with some analogies for our listeners, it reminded me of when we, as kids, would go to amusement parks and kind of uh, ride in those bumper car rides where you're just kind of crashing up against each other. And I, I have to say, I've, I've never thought about DNA repair like that, but that's one of the images that came to my mind. So can you tell us from these, what you've learned from studying these proteins from frog egg extracts, kind of some of the basic understanding that you now have about DNA repair. So you might wonder why we use frog extracts and not human extracts to study DNA replication and DNA repair. And the short, well, the answer is, is really twofold. The first is that people have been trying for decades to get this to work in human cell extracts and have failed. And uh, the reasons we could go into the reasons for that, uh, if you like, but the fact is that frog egg extracts are very, very potent uh, and able to, to replicate and repair DNA. And as you all know, uh, we are very related to frogs. We're both vertebrate species. And if you look at the uh, proteins in frogs and in humans, they are every protein that a human has, a frog has, and they're about anywhere from 80 to 98% identical. So, so that's why for, you know, for purely practical reasons, we use, we use frog extracts and we feel justified in doing so because, because in the end, we're very, very similar to frogs. With the exception of those thousands of eggs. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, there are many, ex I mean, there are obviously many differences, but at the molecular level, we are very similar. Right, which is where you sit. No, I think it's fascinating for us to understand that scientists are using model systems to allow us to ask questions that are entirely applicable to the situation in humans, while the model system may be quite different. And for you and your lab, you study DNA repair and using frog egg extracts gives you an opportunity to have 
enough starting material to work with. And it's fascinating, some of the work that you've done. I want you to help us understand what's happening on DNA during repair that's been surprising to you. I think one of the things that I've read about is that it's not just this, I don't know, I, I don't know how I've ever pictured DNA repair before, but I certainly didn't appreciate how many proteins were involved and kind of how rigorous these interactions were. And when I've started reading more and more about your work over the last few days, one of the images that came to mind was of like on DNA being like bumper cars that I would have ridden as a kid at an amusement park with all these different proteins kind of crashing into each other. Is that, first of all, help us understand, is that at all an appropriate analogy? And what have you learned about um, DNA repair from these frog egg extracts? Yeah, it's a great analogy for a few forms of repair. So remember, I said at the beginning that, that cells have around 10 different strategies for repairing DNA. And some of them are pretty simple and just involve cutting out one strand and replacing it with fresh, undamaged DNA. But the mechanisms that we study are much more complicated. And actually, what we study are mechanisms where the repair is coupled to the process of DNA replication. And what I mean by that is that in many cases, the cell can't really tell that there's a problem, that the DNA is damaged until it tries to copy that segment of DNA. And the process of copying DNA involves taking those two strands of the double helix and separating them so that you can build two new double helices and so you can kind of like image or uh, visualize a, a photocopier that is, you know, running down um, a line of text. And sometimes that photocopier bumps into a huge obstruction that blocks its ability to progress further. And so I think that's what made you think of, of the bumper car analogy. And it's really the collision of the photocopier or what we call the replosome, which is a collection of enzymes that copy DNA with the DNA damage that triggers the repair. And one new pathway that we and others have discovered recently uh, involves the collision of the replosome with a protein that has been accidentally permanently attached to the DNA by a compound such as formaldehyde. And so what we discovered, which really surprised and delighted us, was that when the photocopier hits that protein obstruction, the photocopier recruits an enzyme called a protease that attacks the protein obstruction and degrades it to a little stub that the photocopier can pass over. So we call that replication coupled DNA protein crosslink repair. It was a very unexpected finding, but in the end, <clears throat> it makes perfect sense. And, and an, a different analogy that I could make would be like if you're driving on a narrow country road with an 18-wheeler and you come across 
a boulder the size of a house, then, and you have to get past this boulder to reach your destination, then what we discovered is that the 18-wheeler pulls out a huge stick of dynamite, sticks it under the boulder, and blows it up so that it can keep going, so that the 18-wheeler can get past this, this big roadblock on the DNA. I love that analogy. It's so, yeah, that's perfect. So help us go from the other direction. What you have explained so far and that we've talked about mostly in our conversation has all been about about maintaining the fidelity of DNA. So this is a cancer podcast. If that's all true, then it would make sense that if, if all of this effort that cells put into repairing DNA is so important, it would make really good sense to me that blocking some of these processes that you have described to us would be a pretty sneaky way for a cancer cell to grow. Can you take some of the analogies you shared with us and help us to understand what might go wrong in a cancerous cell? Absolutely. So we know from decades of molecular, cell biological, and genetic studies that defects in these 10 different DNA repair pathways in many cases are really the causative event that triggers cancer. And again, it boils down to the concept that in order for a normal cell to become a cancer cell, it has to acquire a whole bunch of new properties. And under normal circumstances, when DNA repair is operating just fine, there's no time and no opportunity for all of those genetic changes to occur. Whereas if DNA repair is compromised in a way that doesn't kill the cell, but allows a more rapid rate of mutations to accumulate, then the stage is set for what you could call um, you know, rapid genome evolution within the cell that lost its repair pathway. And, and so now you're on the road to, to cancer. And so the examples that I'm sure some of you have heard of are things like uh, uh, breast and ovarian cancer, which is caused by mutations in the BRCA genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. These are DNA repair genes. That is, uh, genes that encode for proteins that carry out DNA repair. Another example um, is colorectal cancer, which is caused by mutations in a process called mismatch repair, and the list goes on. So, Johannes, help us to understand what insights might you gain from, from your understanding these pathways, and I love the description that you gave of the 18-wheeler trying to get down a really skinny road, and there's a big boulder. So as you understand, we, we did not know that existed a few years ago, and now we do. So can you help us to understand how increasing our knowledge of the molecular landscape, and in this case, you gave us that, that vision of the skinny road. So at the level of DNA, how, how would this understanding help us to learn more about cancer 
ways to treat cancer, ways to diagnose cancer. Can you, can you make that jump for us into where we might be in another five or 10 years based on some of the observations that you're making now in these frog egg extracts? So one of the most exciting concepts to emerge from our study of DNA repair is a concept called synthetic lethality. So recall that I told you a little earlier that cells have multiple different DNA repair pathways. And it turns out that several of these have overlapping functions. And what I mean by that is that sometimes two distinct pathways can address the same type of DNA damage. And what that means is that if you lose pathway A, let's call it, then cells accumulate mutations at a faster rate, but the cells are basically viable. And if you lose pathway B, the same is true. But if you lose both pathways A and B simultaneously, now the cell accumulates so much DNA damage that it can't survive and it dies. So now let's think about what happens in cancer. Often, a single cell in your body through some random event will lose one of these pathways. So let's suppose that you lose pathway A and that means that that cell will begin to accumulate mutations at a faster rate and it will, if you're unlucky, become a tumor cell. So now the concept of synthetic lethality in the clinic is that you try now to develop a drug that targets very specifically pathway B. And so if you treat such a patient with a drug against pathway B, the tumor cells will die because the tumor cells lack both pathways A because of the mutation that was the original bounding event and pathway B because you're inactivating it using a drug. And the clever thing about this strategy is that it's really only the tumor cell that will die because all the surrounding tissue is still proficient for pathway A. So those cells, the rest of the cells in your body, can actually deal with the absence of pathway B that you are uh, affecting with the drug. So uh, this is this is this concept of, of synthetic lethality, and it is currently being used in the clinic to treat breast and ovarian cancer with a drug called a PARP inhibitor. And people are very actively looking for other synthetic lethalities so that this approach can be applied to other types of tumors that uh, arise due to defects in a variety of different DNA repair pathways. I don't want to let you go before I, I ask what, what's on your mind? I think it's really it's interesting for our listeners to know, what are you most excited about right now? We've been studying a new form well, no, that's that's not really right. Uh, uh, well, for us, let's let's put it this way: um, uh, a form of DNA damage that that we hadn't really considered much 
until recently, which is a what we call a strand discontinuity or a nick. So normally the two strands of DNA are continuous and they run for millions and millions of base pairs along the length of a chromosome, but occasionally the strand becomes interrupted. And we and others assumed that this was not such a big deal, something that you could repair relatively easy, easily and that would not cause big problems. But what we've done now is we've actually taken DNA and we engineered one of these NICs into the DNA and we put it into the egg extract and we asked what happens when the extract attempts to copy this DNA that has a strand discontinuity? And the really quite shocking result is that when the reposome, that photocopier that I talked about, reaches this strand discontinuity, it doesn't stop. It just flies right off of the DNA. So the entire photocopier now falls apart and um, dissociates from the DNA, bringing the process of DNA duplication to an abrupt end. Mm. So, so this is actually a catastrophic event because once you are, once you've initiated the process of replication for complicated regulatory reasons that I, I don't have time to describe, uh, if you lose that photocopier, you can't rebuild it. Mm. So, so this seemingly sort of relatively innocuous type of DNA damage, it turns out is, is much more toxic than we initially thought. Are there ways that funding from the American Cancer Society has impacted your research? Absolutely. So a couple of years after I started my lab, I had obtained my first grant from the National Institutes of Health. But once you get your first grant, getting your second grant can be very difficult. And so my second major grant that really allowed me to expand my lab to a level where you know, we could really have a critical mass of, of trainees and, and do a, a critical mass of studies, that second grant came from the American Cancer Society, and that really took my lab into its most productive phase. So that's that's definitely one um, reason. The other the other uh, effect of the American Cancer Society has been that numerous postdoctoral fellows in my laboratory have obtained funding from the American Cancer Society, and that's you know, a big feather in their cap. It's uh, something that they can put on their CV. And of course, it relieves financial pressure on my other grants and allows us to do more science. And uh, the third source uh, or the third way that ACS has uh, affected me is my recent appointment as a research, sorry, as a um, as an American Cancer 
Society professor. And again, that those funds have allowed us to branch into new areas and have also had the effect of um, uh, getting me to reach out to the community and interact with lay people, which has been tremendously rewarding. Well, I think I speak on behalf of the entire ACS when I say we're just we're really grateful for all you've done and continue to do. Um, I think it'd be nice to close the podcast just to hear a little bit of that communication that that you do share with cancer patients. Um, many of our listeners either have cancer now or are survivors or, or caregivers for someone who has cancer. Is there a message you'd like to share with these listeners as we close off today? Yes, I would. I think all of them know better than I do what a devastating disease cancer is. But I'd like to point out that behind all the hardship and suffering, there's a very thin silver lining, which is that cancer and other diseases have really motivated us to look deeply into human biology. And it has really allowed us to unlock these almost miraculous mechanisms that our cells use to remain healthy uh, and and evolve and grow and and so despite all the suffering uh, there is you know this this one upside which is that it has helped us to to understand who we are well thank you Hannes, for all you do and best of luck We appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.